Dealing with an in-flight emergency requires a clear head and some memorized items to begin to deal with it. An engine failure on a clear day at least gives you the opportunity to select a suitable landing site. But what happens when the engine quits when you're IMC? We'll hear how one pilot dealt with this very scenario on this episode of ILAF. I learned about flying from that. Hi, welcome to episode 18 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by Avemco Insurance. I'm your host, Rob Ryder, and today we'll meet Carrie McCauley, a self-professed adventure junkie and 30-year ferry flight pilot who has made more than 100 international ferry flights to every continent except Antarctica. But the engine failure he experienced took place over relatively familiar territory, in the U.S. Carrie and I will chat about it right after this message from the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. The folks at Avemco Insurance have been passionate about pilot safety for 60 years. That's why they sponsor the FAA's Fast Team Wings program and support I learned about flying from that. Avemco even rewards safe pilots with reduced premiums of up to 10%. You can instantly save 5% just for listening to iLaft. Call 800-338-8705 today or visit avemco.com slash flying and tell them you're a listener. Now, I learned about flying from that. I'd like to welcome to iLaft Carrie McCauley, a guy who wrote to me and said, hey, I've been doing some interesting things that may be worthwhile to share. And when I read more about this guy, I found out, yeah, he's got a lot of stories to tell. Carrie, welcome to I Laughed. Oh, thanks for having me. You have been doing a lot of flying of all types uh, but you have a you have an interesting story that actually takes you to the army, and it's rotary winged flight that was uh, one of the first things you did, wasn't it? Yeah, um, you know I'd grown up like a lot of pilots, always dreaming of flying, and my room growing up had a bunch of plastic models all over the ceiling. But <laughs> so I always knew I wanted to fly, and really couldn't wait to get started. So I joined the Minnesota National Guard at seventeen and went to basic training in between my junior and senior year of high school. And right after that, I went to uh, Fort Rucker to become a U.S. Army Huey crew chief, which was a lot of fun. And the, as, a, as a crew chief, you're, it's, it's your airplane, right? It's the pilot, the different, different pilots, but you own that particular helicopter, right? Oh, exactly. We just let those guys up front drive it, but we, uh, that's my, that's my bird. <laughs> <laughs> and did you, did you ever run into issues, uh, when, uh, working with a crew chief that you had pilots who maybe weren't as, uh, talented as they may, as they perhaps should have been? Yeah. Yeah. We'd get some, uh, some new fresh second lieutenants once in a while that gave us a couple of gray hairs now and again. <laughs> Everybody had to kind of school them a bit, but uh, for the most part, the guys were pretty good. So out of high school, you went into the guard. Did you go on to college after that? Yep. I went to the University of Minnesota and studied small business management and uh, aviation. So obviously it was a waste of time. Wait, no, we're actually <laughs> again. 
<laughs> no, never a waste. What is it that got you from being a crew chief on a Huey into flying fixed-wing airplanes? Because eventually we got to find out about this ferry flying you do. But anyway, what? where was the connection? Yeah, well, you know, I went to drill one day and I met a you know friend of mine showed up and a fellow crew chief, Pete Demas, and he, you know, I say, Hey Pete, what's going on? And he said, Yeah, I just got back from Africa. I said, really? Do tell. And he told me about the fact that his father owns a ferry company and he just delivered a plane to South Africa from St. Paul. And like and that sounded like the most incredible adventure that I'd ever heard of. And adventures right down my, you know, exactly what I live for. So I, I decided right there and then I needed to be a ferry pilot because that just sounded like the coolest thing in the world. Would you describe yourself as an adventure junkie? Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> growing <laughs> up, I'd always been that. You know, I got the nickname Scary Carrie very uh, early in my childhood, and it's what? pretty much stuck ever since. <laughs> Please tell me you weren't jumping off a roof with a cape pretending you were Superman. Pretty much stuff like that. Climbing the highest tree, jumping off roofs, uh, you know, swimming in rivers that really shouldn't be swimming. You know, I pretty much tortured my mother uh, as much as I could. Oh, my gosh. Well. This guy said he ferried an airplane, and that that set off a, an explosion in your brain. What what did you do to get to the point where you decided you were going to actually be able to ferry aircraft and somebody would trust you with an airplane to ferry across an ocean or wherever? Well, step number one is I needed to get a pilot's license. because <laughs> I'd, <laughs> I'd been taking some some flying lessons, but I hadn't really got very far. But when I heard that, I you know made ferry flying my, my goal. So I got all my ratings. Um, I'd started skydiving at the time as well, because, again, that's what an adventure junkie does. And I started flying skydivers because my friend told me that you needed about 1,500 hours to qualify for a job as a ferry pilot. Uh, a friend and I and I bought a light twin, got some twin time. He crashed it. Another story. Um, <laughs> I was in the back seat going, ah. But, um, <laughs> well, he evidently survived as did you. So yeah. that's, that's a fortunate thing. But it, I, I assume it totaled the airplane. It did. It did. Uh, it was uh, it was quite a harrowing little adventure. He learned that he's also he was a helicopter pilot. Learned that you cannot hover a twin Comanche. Just you know, for your <laughs> listeners out there, write that down. They don't stop in midair. Just <laughs> auto rotate does not translate. <laughs> right. Does does not work. So. But after that, you know, I built a bunch of hours flying skydivers and doing other stuff, and uh, hit my. My friend's father up at his wedding, actually, when he was good and uh, inebriated, and they decided, what the heck, they've got a, they got a spot for me, so they hired me. You have now made over how many crossings or ferry flights across the oceans or continent to continent? How long have you been doing this? My first flight was in 1990, and since then, I've done over 100 crossings, um, and I pretty much cross, count a crossing as over an ocean or continent to continent sort of a thing. Um, been all over the world, hit every continent except Antarctica so far. And I'm going to hit that one. It's on my bucket list. Pacific as well as Atlantic cross, crossings, I assume. Correct. Correct. I've got a couple of questions with respect to what you handled back in 1990. That was pre-GPS. What what was the first one that you did that, and what kind of navigation gear did you have that enabled you to make the flight safely? Well, the first flight they hired me to do was ferrying a uh, Beach Duchess, which is a light twin, mm -hmm. from St. Paul to Lisbon, Portugal. And my first 
you know, big ocean leg was St. John's, Newfoundland to Santa Maria in the Azores, which is almost 1,800 miles of open ocean. And my navigational aid was a compass. So you that, did you it. did it the way Lindbergh did it. That exactly and, the way. And, and any sort of winds aloft forecasts that you were able to glean from international flight service stations and things. Yeah, yeah. We get a, a winds aloft forecast from Nav Canada and we sit down with our huge paper charts and plot the great circle course and your waypoints along the way where you'd maybe change a, a heading a de- degree or two here and there. And after that, you just take off and follow your flight plan and hope the winds aloft were correct. Because if they're not, you won't know until it's too late. I hear that. Did you make position reports and did you have an HF radio to do that? Or did you use an, a VHF and talk to uh, overflying airliners and have them relay? No, we did have an HF radio. Uh, we, you know, mounted it on top of the ferry tanks that we used to give us the extra range. And we would do position reports, which pre-GPS, the position reports for us anyway were I always find kind of funny and disingenuous is like, I'm just reading off my flight plan. I have no way of knowing if my position is even remotely accurate because there's no way to cross-reference your uh, your position. You're just going off time. Wow. Did most of the airplanes that you have flown uh, on crossings or in continent to continent have autopilots in them? Most of them did, thank goodness. Um, but a lot didn't. And the ones that didn't were... They're a bear, you know, it's, it's cause it's a lot of work sitting there and actually trying to hold a heading, especially when you're trying to read a book, which I do a lot when I'm out over the ocean, you got to stay awake and pass the time. And it's kind of, you just make your book part of your scan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There is one other question that, and I interviewed a guy named Bernard Wolf earlier in the series, and I failed to ask him this question. What do you do about going to the bathroom? <laughs> Well, when I first started, my boss told me that you you, know, you bring along a plastic jug so you can relieve yourself into that so you're not so uncomfortable. But I, I didn't care for that method because I hated walking into a, an FBO at the end of the day carrying a <laughs> jug of something that's obviously not apple juice. So uh, I, just, I developed the Ziploc baggie method. You get a quart Ziploc baggie and do your business into there. Always use two baggies. That's just a little tip there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> On my next ocean crossing, I will remember yep. that. <laughs> but you seal it up, no muss, no fuss. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a plane with a, a window you can open up, you just chuck it right out and you're all done. Okay. All right. We got it. Thank you. I'm glad to know all that. Now, let's, <laughs> let's though, talk about one of the experiences you mentioned when you emailed me. You said one of the experiences you had was losing an engine in a Mooney in a thunderstorm. Now, was that during a ferry crossing or or when did that happen? And and tell the story of what happened and how you handled it. So I was hired to deliver a Mooney to Rome, Italy from St. Paul. That's where we, you know, we tanked it up, put ferry tanks in it, HF radio, the whole works. And on the first leg from St. Paul to Bangor, Maine, I encountered a line of thunderstorms um, somewhere over the east coast you know just a few hours shy of maine and i didn't feel like stopping for the day you know you've kind of got that uh, mission mindset you got to keep going so i was at nineteen thousand feet on oxygen the the plane was equipped with a strike finder you know not not radar but at least i had something yeah and i talked to uh, atc and asked them you know back then they'd give you some pretty good weather pictures and they said well there's you know there's sket they're isolated thunderstorms embedded um, there's some gaps here and there. Maybe you could, you know, like the, the, 
the thunder, the line of thunderstorms is basically north to south. So I started, I headed south and was looking for a gap in between a couple of thunderstorms. Conferred with ATC, we found a reasonable gap, and I, you know, went through them. Uh, let me went, ask. Let me interrupt though. What kind of gear did you have for navigation? When the, in the United States, you probably had it VORs, but they can be messed up in a thunderstorm. So when was that, and what did you have? This was 1992, and actually had one of the first GPSs duct taped to the instrument panel. <laughs> you know, they're very rudimentary, but it was, you know, back then it was like magic. I mean, oh my sure. gosh, you've got a GPS. It's like, wow. I was, I think I was probably the first time I used a GPS and I was looking forward to going all over the ocean with actual navigational aids versus just a compass and a stopwatch. So sure. that's what I had. It wasn't, you know, there was no screen or, you know, map on it, just, you know, numbers and headings and stuff and ground speed but it was pretty cool um okay back but, back to my before i interrupted you talk yeah. about now you're looking for that hole yeah so I, we, we you know looked at it you know the strike finder showed lightning strikes and two distinct blobs on either side and it looked like a nice gap in between and atc conferred that i might not die if i go in there so i <laughs> gave it a shot <laughs> headed headed back east and uh, I was just pretty much right in between the two thunderstorms, getting kicked around a little bit, but it wasn't horrible. It was pretty, you know, it was pretty bumpy, but, you know, IMC. And I heard this, this weird beeping sound. I was like, that's weird. And I turned my Walkman off because, yes, of course, I'm listening to music because you, you got to have a soundtrack on an adventure, right? Uh, <laughs> a Walkman. I haven't heard that term used in a yeah, long right? time. That's a little earbuds in your head, in your for headphones, the, you know. For the young people in the audience, a Walkman was a very oversized and under uh, under capable uh, iPod. So whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, t I turned the music off and I, I heard this strange beep and I'm like, what in the world is that? And I took my headset off and I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's the GPS telling me something. And, and no, that wasn't it. And I looked down and, and it was, I had a low fuel pressure alert. You know, I looked at the fuel pressure gauge and it was down to zero. I'm like, uh oh, that's not bad. And then I realized it's awful quiet in the cockpit. That's. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not supposed to be quiet. And I uh, realized I'd lost the engine. Oh my! So, <laughs> yeah, so you're loaded with ferry tanks. You've got you got enough gas to probably get you to Bangor and back. Well, not a hundred percent because when you know the distance between St. Paul and Bangor isn't quite the oceanic distances, so we typically didn't fill the ferry tank up completely because you know when we use ferry tanks, we're allowed to go twenty-five to thirty percent over max gross in the plane. And if you don't need to do that, we don't oh, typically do that. So I had gotcha. enough gas to get to Bangor with an ample reserve. And I was on the ferry tank. You burn the ferry tank off first because it's gives you kind of an FCG as well. So you kind of get rid of that and, you know, let, save the wing tanks for later. But, yeah, it's all of a sudden really quiet. So I, you know, kind of pitched for Beck's glide. And, and I didn't really know where I was going to go or what the problem was. I hit the fuel boost and started doing a turn because i you know if you don't know where to go don't go anywhere is always my opinion you know do a circle and contacted atc said hey i've uh i've lost an end i lost an engine um i need a vector to a you know a clear area in an airport that's not ifr and he said oh sure no problem uh, there's a nice you know good weather 40 miles behind you if you just want to head back west and i go um, he obviously wasn't listening was he 
Yeah, I said, okay, um, I'm in a Mooney, so when I say <laughs> I lost an engine, I should have, I, let me be more clear, I lost the, the engine. engine. <laughs> I'm all out of engines. Let's let's see if we can find something something closer. And uh, <laughs> so so he hits, you know, he tells me there's a there's an airport closer, uh, Potsdam, and and the GPS they had didn't have a database. You know, this is very rudimentary stuff. So I couldn't just punch in like now, you know, nearest airport or the identifier. So he gives me the lat he re- long. He, he gives me the lat long. And I'm like I mentioned, I'm getting bounced around really good. I'm in a dead stick engine. So I'm flying with one hand, trying to maintain control of the plane. I'm punching in all the GPS coordinates and I hit go to. And it says the, it says the airport's 1,473 miles away. So hmm. <laughs> obviously did missed a, missed a digit there someplace. Oh, goodness. So I, instead of trying that over again, I just said, tell you what, why don't you just give me a heading, please. We'll do it the old fashioned way. You just point me at the airport and I'll do the rest. So he did that. And so I get headed toward the airport. And in the meantime, I'm still trying to troubleshoot the problem. You know, the boost pump's on. I switched off the ferry tank. I'd been on that. I make sure that, the, you know, I don't know if I switched tanks on, on the wing tanks, but, you know, nothing's working. and I can't figure it out. You know, the mags are still on. The mixture's where it should be. You know, it was a mystery, but, you know, you, you kind of have to compartmentalize your, your thought process. You know, control the airport, navigate, try to fix the airplane, you know. Keep keep it together. Keep keep going toward someplace safe. And at this point, though, Carrie, you are you have a best glide. What kind of altitude? How many hundred feet were you losing per minute? And did you say you were at fourteen thousand? I started at nineteen. Nineteen. That's so, okay. Yep, I was on oxygen, uh, so I had a lot of altitude. You know, from nineteen thousand feet, a Mooney will go quite a ways. You know, so I I and the airports in that part of the country are. Kind of few and far between, but not middle of the ocean far between. So I was right. pretty pretty confident in my ability to make that airport. Uh, I was probably going down about six seven hundred feet a minute, maybe maybe a little bit less. Um, but like I said, the ferry tank. I looked back; the ferry tank was empty, so I had I was back to normal configuration, weight and balance wise. But the wing tanks were were basically full, so I just couldn't figure it out. Um, so I headed toward the airport. I got there with a little altitude to spare, so I'm kind of circling over it. And they, you know, the reporting weather conditions were about 800, seven, 800 foot, and about two miles in haze. Um, so it wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. You know, as long as I'd set up correctly, and I'm basically going to have to shoot an approach and break out at seven, 800 feet, I, I should be able to make the runway or at least affect a safe landing. Was this an ILS approach or an NDB approach or what was it at the time or a VOR approach? I think it was a VOR approach, definitely not an ILS approach. This is, you know, Potsdam is a tiny little airport in the middle of nowhere. So it was just- Upstate New York, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Upstate New York. Yeah. So uh, got got all set up and just about the time I broke out, I got the engine back, which was awesome. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> like- cool. What? I don't, you know, but I'm, you're still wondering, I didn't know why I quit in the first place. I suspected the ferry tank, but I wasn't sure, you know, that, that was the, that was kind of the wild card in the situation. That was the main difference in the plane other than, you know, normal. That was the main uh, thing we'd change. So, but I, I wasn't a positive. The engine was going to keep running. So I, uh, you know, set up for the debt, you know, to stay dead stick. You know, I was assuming the engine was going to quit. So I stayed high, you know, shot for landing on the first third of the runway and luckily 
set up correctly and got her down safely and she kept running. Got off the runway and start taxiing down and here comes a squad car ra- racing down the down the taxiway toward me. So air traffic control had alerted them that you were going to be there and hopefully they were not going to find somebody in a smoking hole in the ground. Right, right. Yeah, so <laughs> the guy blocked my way and I had to actually shut the plane down and get out and say, can yeah. I help you? So he goes, you have to clear the area. There's a there's a plane <laughs> in trouble coming in. I'm like, well, that's me. <laughs> At least I hope it's me. I hope there are two two emergencies in the Potsdam Airport on a Wednesday afternoon. But uh, yeah, so I taxied to the ramp and uh, the fire department showed up. The ambulance showed up. The Chamber of Commerce, the Boy Scouts. I mean, the whole town turned out to... <laughs> come and come and see the airplane crash. Uh, oh, jeez! I was really sorry to disappoint them. They they were all looked kind of dejected, <laughs> but they got out of work early, so I think they were happy. So. I'm I'm sure they were. Tell you what, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll find out what went wrong and what you learned about flying from that. Okay? All right, sounds good. As a pilot, isn't it great to hear ATC say direct? Well, Avemco is America's only direct aircraft insurance company and the only one that connects you directly with an underwriter empowered to make decisions, solve problems, and approve coverage based on your individual situation, not what some rule book says. Call Avemco at 800-338-8705. 800-338-8705 and learn about coverage personalized for what you fly and how you fly it. Now, back to I Laughed. We're back with Kerry McCauley, who just told us how he lost an engine at 19,000 feet in a Mooney and was able to make a safe landing, but the engine came back just before landing. Kerry, fill us in. What happened? why it happened, and what lessons did you learn? Well, after I got down, I, you know, first thing I did was call, called my company and talked to the mechanic and asked him, what the heck? And he said, he got out the diagram. He says, well, what probably happened was, you know, when you ran the ferry tank dry, the, the ferry tank was plumbed into the fuel system and kind of a T from the wing tanks. And he, he theorized that the, the high pressure from the high-pressure air instead of fuel coming from the ferry tank blocked the wing tank fuel from reaching the fuel system. And even with the boost pump on, the, the fuel from the wing tanks couldn't reach the engine, so it died. And when I shut the ferry tank off, which was the correct thing to do, there was still a lot of air in the air in the um, fuel system, and the air, you know fuel pump was full of air, so it took a while, quite a while to get fuel to the tank. So at least that's, that's what his theory was. And I sure hoped it was right. Cause you know, next couple stops were over the ocean. So, so you ended up continuing with the flight without any further, further maintenance on the airplane. Is that what you did? Yeah. Yeah. Although halfway to Santa Maria on the next thing, I, I was happened to be watching the fuel, the fuel pressure gauge and as it then bounced twice and dropped to zero. And I thought, Oh, great, here we go again. But it was just a coincidence that the gauge died then. I mean, <laughs> so kid, it was okay. The, the gauge died? It died. I mean, and I've never had that happen in 9,000 hours. It's never happened again. Never lost that gauge. But I was smack dab in the middle of the ocean. And that, you know, the fuel pressure dropped to zero. Like, oh, God. You know, <laughs> and then you just jolt into action. You know, get your get your position report out. Start, start preparing to ditch. But the engine kept going. So, like, okay. <laughs> 
I guess we're not going to die today. So, Carrie, how would you define the lessons learned through this experience? Well, there's a couple of real important lessons I, I learned in that one. Number one was when during dealing with ferry tanks, especially, but any aircraft modification is to really understand what happened. I mean, I am an aircraft mechanic. You know, I was a Huey mechanic in the Army and, you know, I'm very into the maintenance side of things. You're a systems guy as well as an adventure junkie. Yeah, yeah. And on that one, I had the one the one big flaw that a lot of pilots have is I got complacent. I got happy with it. I've been using ferry tanks for a couple of years. And I pretty much just said, nodded in my head, said, yeah, 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 it looks good. Let's go. And that was a mistake. You know, if you're going to have something modified on your airplane, especially a ferry tank or fuel systems or something like that, really test it out, really understand what it is. I, you know, I didn't run that ferry tank dry until I was at 19,000 feet in the middle of a thunderstorm. And that's probably not the best place to test a modification on an airplane. (laughs) Would have changing to the wing tanks earlier prior to the, the running the ferry tank drive, would that have been a proper out or avoidance of that issue? Definitely. If I'd, if I'd switched, bef- you know, just before the ferry tank went dry, it would have been a non-issue. I wouldn't have noticed a thing. But typically when I'm using ferry tanks, I want to make sure we use all the gas possible because, you know, the next couple stops are over the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And I wanted to make sure I had, you know, I could use all the fuel and apparently I, I can use it all, but except that last little bit, I should probably turn it off. So gotcha. learn that lesson. Let me, I meant to ask earlier, is it, was it a fuel injected engine? Would you consider what happened vapor lock? Um, it was a fuel injected engine and that maybe vapor lock, but I, I kind of theorize that the, the boost pump was, you know, once, once the high pressure air cleaned out the fuel system, I think that boost pump was just, you know, cavitating or whatever, however you say that, you know, it just, it wasn't pumping anything. There was, it's just spinning in there dry and it took a long time for the fuel to finally get in there and get something moving. Gotcha. What else did you learn? Well, the other thing I learned was I needed to keep a better track of my position because I, you know, going along that line of thunderstorms, you know, before I went into the line of thunderstorms, I was in clear blue sky, having a great time. I had plenty of gas. I was all happy. And I'm just kind of like, I oh, turned south and looking for this place. I, I flew f- about 40 miles south of my original position. And all I was concerned about was a break in the, in the thunderstorms. I wasn't really keeping track of where I was. You know, I mean, I'm, but I'm on an IFR flight plan. I'm talking to, you know, ATC. I've got a GPS. I'm over the United States. You know, I wasn't concerned about a thing. But, you know, in the future, I realized, you know, if you're going to just trust your GPS, you should probably cross-reference, you know, VOR here or there. Yep, I'm at this place where I really think I, has, I am. Um, because, you know, if something goes wrong, like your GPS all of a sudden goes black, you should have at least a general idea of where you are. <laughs> yeah, that would that would help. It'd yeah, help. all the bells and whistles do not make a, a suitable replacement for just good SA, even if it's a paper chart, because if the electrical system in a plane goes, the GPS, everything else, unless you got a battery powered GPS, everything's gone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've I've caught myself before then and even since. Just, you know, you're on a long cross country and you've just, you're just 
sitting there fat, dumb, and happy following the magenta line. And you just know that I'm 200 miles from my destination and I'll be there in an hour and a half. And that's, and that's as far as you've gone. It's like, well, you know, it might be a good idea to look at the map and say, and I'm here. <laughs> gotcha. Carrie, thank you very much. Now, this is only one story in a bunch of stories in a book. You, you're, it's not your first book, but tell me about this new book that you're in, uh, working on uh, that you've released and now doing the audio book on called Fairy Pilot. Yeah, Fairy Pilot's um, my latest book, and it's been been really well received. It's basically chronicles my early fairy flying from my first trip in 1990 through the next 10 years and uh, the trials and tribulations that went through, because this is just one of a dozen stories that were <laughs> as harrowing. I, I was lucky enough or unlucky enough to have a lot of really stuff go bad and, and come on, come through. And maintained a clear head in those. And I'm sure that's one of the lessons learned in any sort of uh, unusual occurrence is that you maintain a clear head and focus and then do those three things, aviate, navigate, communicate. Exactly. If you've got time to panic, you've got time to do something more productive. <laughs> Carrie McCauley, thanks for being on I Laughed. Thanks a lot, Rob. Appreciate it. Having the opportunity to hear pilots tell their own stories and share them in this format is extremely gratifying and valuable to me, and I hope it is to you as well. If you're a new listener, I hope you'll make I Laughed one of your regular podcasts. Subscribe and set up notifications, and you'll automatically be alerted when new episodes are dropped. We're getting interesting feedback that even folks who aren't pilots are enjoying the stories, so I hope you'll share I Laughed with your pilot and non-pilot friends. You can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes every couple of weeks so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927. I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That. <laughs>